Welcome to Lab Talk, a special edition podcast produced by the Scientists Creative Services team, where we explore topics at the leading edge of innovative research. This episode is brought to you by 10x Genomics, which builds solutions for interrogating biological systems at a resolution and scale that matches the complexity of biology. Their rapidly expanding suite of products, which includes instruments, consumables, and software, enables fundamental discoveries across multiple research areas, including cancer, immunology, and neuroscience. A diverse population of microglial cells resides in the brain. Similar to immune cells, microglial cells respond to minute changes in their environment. Sometimes this response is beneficial, and other times detrimental. Scientists are working to tease apart the dynamic role of microglial response in the pathogenesis of neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's disease. In this episode, Tiffany Garbett from the Scientists' Creative Services team spoke with Samuel Marsh, a postdoctoral research fellow in the laboratory of Beth Stevens at Boston's Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School, about how he uses single-cell technology and spatial transcriptomics to better understand the role of microglia in Alzheimer's disease pathogenesis. Hidden in the complexities of the brain are resonant immune cells called microglia that play a larger role in the brain's response to its microenvironment than scientists previously expected. Glial cells typically fall into three categories, oligodendrocytes, which create white matter and sheath neurons to enable better neuronal communication, astrocytes, which support neurons by providing nutrients and other trophic factors, and microglia, the immune cells of the brain. Unlike oligodendrocytes and astrocytes, which arise from neuroprogenitor lineages, microglia derive from peripheral immune cells that migrate to the developing brain. The blood-brain barrier traps microglia in the brain, where they continue to proliferate through an organism's lifespan. Samuel Marsh's fascination with microglia began when he was a PhD student at the University of California, Irvine. While working on a mouse model of Alzheimer's disease, Marsh noticed that the microglia completely changed Alzheimer's disease pathology. All of a sudden, that just kind of triggered this whole thing, diving down the rabbit hole of, okay, what, what do these cells do? And, and how are they affecting things in the brain? Microglia serve a lot of very critical roles in terms of normal development. Previous studies have implicated them in synaptic pruning, which is part of the refinement of the synapses and neurocircuits in our brain that allow the brain to function like it does. You don't want too many of those connections and you don't want too few of those connections. And they also play a number of critical roles in injury and disease. Microglia respond when you have an injury, like a traumatic brain injury, or if you have a disease or an infection. They are constantly moving their processes around to make sure that there's nothing there that shouldn't be there. And if it detects something that shouldn't be there, they have this extremely dramatic and very quick response to try and isolate and, and get rid of that Alzheimer's disease results from the toxic buildup of abnormal proteins, primarily amyloid and tau, which cause protein plaques and tangles, respectively. Once these proteins accumulate, they cause a loss of synapses and eventually neuronal death. Loss of synapses and neuronal death largely correlate with memory decline and loss of cognitive function in people with Alzheimer's disease. Microglia can respond to both amyloid and tau. One of the questions that we're just beginning to be able to answer better with new techniques like single cell sequencing is, are microglia beneficial or harmful? And 
does their role change depending on the disease stage? In several studies from the mid-2000s, researchers explored differences between the genomes of patients with and without Alzheimer's disease and identified genes that influenced a person's risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. The majority of these genes were expressed in microglia. Initially, scientists believed that microglia only responded to damage from aberrant protein buildup in the brain. These studies suggested that microglia may actually help cause the development and progression of Alzheimer's disease. In another study, researchers found that the loss of a single amino acid in the TREM2 protein, a protein found only in microglial cells in the brain, dramatically increased the risk for Alzheimer's disease. All of these genetic studies have really focused the field to the significance of microglia and neuroimmune signaling in Alzheimer's disease. <laughs> I, I'm very excited that that's driven a, an increase in research in microglia. We're starting to accumulate now more of this data on what genes are changing, but what is the actual functional consequences of these genes changing? What does that mean for how microglia function? And then how does that change in function relate to risk or progression or development of Alzheimer's disease? Traditionally, scientists extract brain tissue and perform bulk sequencing to analyze gene expression changes in the brain. This technique combines numerous different cell types, not just microglia, and only provides a broad view of gene expression in the brain. It does not tell scientists which gene expression changes came from which cell type. Alternatively, scientists may extract just the microglial cells from the brain tissue, but this approach is also limited. Microglial cells are not all the same. Subtypes of microglial cells function differently in different parts of the brain and in response to microenvironmental changes. Single-cell sequencing allows scientists to identify subtypes of cells with unique gene expression patterns to better understand the diverse functions of microglia in the brain. I'm always stunned by what this technology can do. We can now take that whole microglia population and we see all of these different types of microglia. We see some populations that might only be 1% of all microglia, but it's a very clear, distinct population that has distinct gene expression. There might be very subtle changes. By being able to look at those changes on the level of an individual cell or groups of cells and split them apart from each other just offers this resolution that was not possible at all years ago and affords us this opportunity to really understand how these changes are happening. We don't know how many of these cells are changing or how they're changing or or whether microglia are performing beneficial or harmful changes. Maybe they're beneficial at one time point or they're detrimental at one time point. Maybe there's another subtype that is detrimental and whether or not those are present changes. And so this technology really allows us to delve in and answer those questions. The moment cells are extracted from their native tissue, their transcriptional profile begins to change. This reaction is even more pronounced for microglial cells that are programmed to naturally respond to their environment. In December 2020, Marsh and his team published a preprint revealing that how scientists extract microglial cells from the brain alters their transcriptional profile and the accuracy of single-cell sequencing results. Prior postdocs and, and graduate students in the lab had spent a lot of time optimizing a microglial isolation protocol to just get microglia out of the mouse brain without changing them. This relied on keeping all of the cells and keeping the brain very cold. The cold temperature inhibits a lot of our biological processes. By keeping the brain cold, we actually can prevent the cells from doing what they normally do, which is reacting to their environment. 
but that's not the common way to isolate all of the cells from the brain, and it doesn't work for all of the cells. And so often to do that, you use both elevated temperatures and enzymes, which help you break up the structure of the brain. When we started this project, nobody had really looked at whether this was happening on the single cell level and whether it was all microglia that were changing or just some microglia that were changing. To explore the effect of microglial isolation on single cell sequencing results, Marsh and his colleagues extracted mouse brains and isolated microglia under four different conditions. In the first condition, they used the cold extraction technique. In the second condition, they digested brain tissue using an enzymatic approach with elevated temperatures to activate digestion enzymes. In the third and fourth condition, they included transcription inhibitors with the cold extraction technique and the enzymatic technique. So when we did this experiment with all four of these groups, we were able to identify the signature of microglia that was changing only once the brain had had left the body. Because the use of enzymes to digest the brain is such a common technique in neuroscience, we were then able to look at single cell sequencing studies that had come before us and say, how prevalent is this across the previous literature? Marsh and his colleagues observed a distinct gene expression signature associated with the enzymatic approach of digesting brain tissue at an elevated temperature. This distinct gene expression signature was present in a subset of microglial cells that clustered together according to similar gene expression patterns. To the unsuspecting researcher, this would appear like a distinct subpopulation of microglial cells when it is simply an artifact of the extraction technique. This had not been as widely known in the field, and I think especially for those outside of the microglia field who enzymatically digested the brain and did single cell sequencing. But unknowingly, they've got populations of microglia that didn't actually exist when the animal was alive. And so you may spend a lot of time going down experimental progression of trying to understand these cells only to eventually find out that they don't actually exist in the brain and they're only created when you digest the brain in a certain fashion. Marsh and his colleagues found that the simple addition of transcription inhibitors to enzymatic digestion approaches prevented this artificial gene signature. Regardless of elevated temperatures, transcription inhibitors prevent the cell from actively transcribing new RNA in response to environmental changes. Marsh and his colleagues also studied changes in microglia in postmortem tissue, so they looked for the same artificial gene expression signature caused by sample preparation techniques in this tissue. They suspected that the postmortem interval, PMI, the interval between the time of death and when an autopsy is performed on the brain to preserve it for research, might cause an artificial gene expression signature. Our initial and now I think naive hypothesis when we went into it was that the postmortem interval would be the key variable in terms of whether or not we saw this signature in the brain. Our thinking was that this interval of time, there's going to be all of these cellular death processes going on, and that's going to be part of what induces this signature. And maybe if samples had longer PMIs, then they would have more of this signature than samples that had a very short PMI. Microglia and, and also astrocytes show a signature that's similar to this artificial signature but it actually doesn't correlate with PMI. Marsh and his colleagues are still not certain what causes this artificial signature in postmortem human brain tissue, but they suspect that it might be related to how a person died. 
The microglial gene expression signature of a person who died in a hospital after multiple interventions may differ from a person who died suddenly in a car accident. These variables are referred to as metadata variables, and they are not always shared with scientists who use donated brain tissue for research purposes. Understanding these metadata variables and how they could affect gene expression and being able to account for them is going to help facilitate research going forwards. If we generate enough data sets and we have enough of this metadata, we may actually find the metadata variable that correlates with this artificial factor. And we may be able to better account for it when we're trying to study the actual changes that are going on as the result of of Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease or, or whatever condition we're interested in. Understanding patterns of gene expression on the whole tissue level adds further context to single-cell sequencing studies. With single-cell sequencing, researchers can easily distinguish subpopulations of cells based on their gene expression patterns, but they cannot tell where in the brain the cells typically reside. New sequencing technologies incorporate spatial data, enabling researchers to tell exactly where in the tissue a gene is expressed. Spatial techniques is one of these new technologies that can provide some some really valuable information. Spatial transcriptomic technologies are basically taking beads that are very similar to those that are used for the single cell technique and lying them flat on a slide. So you have a single layer of beads. Each of those beads has a specific barcode, and you know where each of those barcodes are on the slide. You then put the piece of tissue on top of the slide, then you do some techniques to basically release the RNA down onto the beads. And it's going to, for the most part, come pretty much straight down onto the beads. Once you read out what RNA is there, you can basically assign that RNA to a point in space and compare what is different between the different points. And The resolution is increasing all of the time. Some of the technologies are now getting down to the resolution where they're closer to single cell resolution, where the bead is not going to overlap with multiple cells. We're excited about using this technology for Alzheimer's disease in relation to where the pathology is in the brain. Using spatial transcriptomics, researchers like Marsh can visualize where amyloid plaques or neurofibrillary tangles of tau are located in the brain and overlay this information with gene expression patterns. In fact, several early mouse studies using this technology show that very specific gene expression changes happen in cells located close to plaque buildups in the brain. Adding spatial context to gene expression patterns helps researchers better understand how each subpopulation functions and the role it plays in diseased and healthy brains. Using this technology, more scientists are beginning to appreciate that no one cell type functions in isolation. Microglia, in particular, are especially adept at responding to their environments, but their responses affect other cell types. Understanding these cell type and sub-cell type specific dynamics in the brain is crucial. I'm really excited about a lot of this kind of cell-to-cell communication and interaction experiments. There's been a number of analysis techniques and, and also some wet lab techniques as well that are enabling a better analysis of how cells might be communicating with each other based on changes in their transcriptome. We can go to some of our spatial techniques and say, are these two cell types actually close together in space? Is there a chance that they are actually interacting and signaling to each other? And then we can take that next step further. They're expressing these molecules that would help them signal to each other. 
And how does that interaction between those two cell types affect the other cell types that are also in that area? Single cell sequencing is so powerful and gene expression is, is so fascinating, but ultimately we want to use that to understand the function of these cells and what that means for the function of your brain or the progression of a disease. Thank you for listening to The Scientist's Lab Talk. This episode was produced by the Creative Services team for The Scientist and narrated by Tiffany Garbutt. Thanks again to our sponsor, 10X Genomics. To keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe to our podcast channel wherever you guest your podcasts.